Welcome back to the final episode of season four. We're listening to episode 10. This is, I guarantee, one thing in this episode is going to be either a surprise for you or a potential impediment to your deal getting done. Um, This is a little bit of a grab bag. We're talking about real estate, seller holdbacks, how to buy a house and a practice at the same time, military, other other issues that come up a lot around dental loans. Um, I put them all in this episode and chances are very, very good that you're going to run up against at least one of these questions or potential issues on your deal. So you're gonna want to listen carefully. Now, before we get into the episode, I have a favor to ask. It's the last episode. You've listened to all of season four. I really appreciate it. As you think through the content that's been presented to you, I've tried to do it in an unbiased way. Uh, Of course, I tried to do it in a respectful way. I'm trying to keep these episodes around the average commute time of 22 minutes or less. And uh, so I, I hope you appreciate uh, the fact that this is all free of charge and it's presented to you in a, in a helpful way. Um, I really tried hard to get good guests that have credibility and have the right answers and all those things and, and get you information that's going to save you thousands, maybe tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if that is, if you feel like that's potentially true for you, what I would ask is just do me one favor. Think back to season one, one of the principles that I taught you about the, the process of finding a practice is building a network. Uh, so if you don't mind, pause this episode right now, hit the pause button and uh, do one of a couple things. Either, you know, leave a quick review, send this episode, hit the forward button in your podcatcher, you know, forward this episode to a friend with a, a quick note that says, hey, listen to this. I thought it was really helpful. Thought you might enjoy this too. You know, hope you're doing well. Friend from dental school, residency, you know, someone you know in the dental community. Uh, it's just good karma. It's, it's, yes, it benefits me, obviously, but really that's not the real reason I'm doing this. The real reason I'm doing this is <laughs> I think the state of dental transitions in general is abysmally ineffective. And the more people have good, accurate, helpful information, the higher quality transitions will be in general. The happier sellers will be. The happier buyers will be. The happier and the easier it is going to be for you to find your practice, for sellers to transition into retirement. And the circle goes on. Pretty soon, Elton John's going to be singing Circle of Life, and we don't need that. So let's, let's get into the episode. But if you don't mind, pause the episode really fast. Do one quick favor for me if you found this content valuable. If you didn't, shoot me a note. Let me know what I missed. I would love to address it in a future episode. Uh, With that, let's get to the final episode, uh, season four, episode 10, um, real estate, holdbacks, buying a house, other issues, and I hope you enjoy. All right, so the the next topic is um, a little bit of a grab bag. Uh, We're talking about uh, seller holdbacks or carrybacks. Uh, We're going to talk about real estate, you know, whether or not you can buy a house and a practice at the same time. It's a little bit of rapid fire here. Mike, let's start with real estate. Um, First of all, let's, let's... Go with the premise that I'm buying a practice and the seller is also selling me the building, condo, whatever it is. Seller won't sell me the practice without selling the building. What rules are different with real estate? Well, typically, with at least with, the, with B of A, we have two different loans. There will be two different entities almost all the time buying. One will be buying the practice. So ABC Dentistry may be buying the practice. And then ABC LLC may be purchasing the building. So there's typically two loans that are taken out. Um, it can be done simultaneously. Uh, and that often is the case when they're both uh, being purchased, unless there's sometimes a lease to own option, meaning uh, 
if I'm buying your practice, Brian, uh, and the practice or the building uh, may be for sale down the road, I typically would negotiate a first right of refusal um, on that on that on that practice. That's if I'm not buying the real estate today. But I hear you saying is if I am buying the real estate today, the first thing to remember is that there are two loans. Correct. One for the practice, one for the real estate. Okay. On the real estate, am I going to get 100% of the real estate value up front? Are you going to lend me the whole cost of the building? In some cases, we will. Yes. Uh, typically, for first-time buyers, we will lend up to 85% of that. Now, of either the purchase price, it's the lesser of the two, which is the purchase price or the appraised value. <laughs> okay, that's an important distinction. Let me go back to the number first. Let me hit that thought on the appraised value thing. Okay, so you're saying... In some cases, you might be able to lend me the full value of the practice, but for most buyers, you can only lend me 85%. First question I have is, what makes the, the difference? When could you give me 100, and when are you only going to give me 85? And so, so I want to make sure I understand correctly. So for the practice, meaning the goodwill and the patience, we will almost always lend always the, entire, the entire purchase price, yes. For the building... If you've been a licensed, or excuse me, if you've been a practice owner for 12 months, then we can look to give 100% financing on the building. I yes. see. But if I'm buying the building on the same day as the practice, you'll give me 85% of the building. Up to 85% of the building. Between 80 and 85%. Uh, if we're a strong buyer and strong practice, 85% of the building. Yes. I got it. Okay, perfect. And that number is calculated on the lesser of two things. And, and um, I don't want to go too fast past this. Uh, so let me uh, let me create a mm -hmm. scenario. Um, let's say the building that I'm sitting in, I'm going to buy it. And it's for sale for a million dollars. What you're saying is, if I am able to negotiate with the seller, um, either through being really savvy or working with that handsome Brian Hanks guy or whatever, right? I'm, I'm kidding. But if the value of the building, as determined by... First of all, who's appraiser? It, the sellers, you know, the seller's real estate agent, or is there another appraiser that's, no, that's appraiser? That's, that's a great question. That's actually what I what I did in my career before I before I started doing this. So it is bid out to a third and by a by a third party to a third party appraisal appraiser. So the bank, neither buyer nor seller, have any influence uh, or connection with that appraiser other than the seller letting them have access into the building. Got it. And the bank hires that appraiser. Another, they send out the bid. The, the banks, the bank sends out a bid, so we don't, you know, overpay for that, or the borrower does not overpay for that. The borrower is responsible for that appraisal. Now, sometimes banks, we have done it in the past, where we run promotions where we reimburse that at closing, but typically that is something that is paid for upfront. Yes. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. And um, and let's say the appraisal from the independent appraiser comes back in a million, but the seller and I have agreed to a price of 800000 for the building, right? Good for me, potentially bad for the seller, but great for me because I'm, I'm getting a building that someone says is worth a million. Sellers agreed to sell it to me at 800000 You're saying the 85% is multiplied by which number? The million? Or so the we would take 85% of, well, in this situation, so maybe I, I misspoke earlier. In this situation, we would do 85% of the appraised value. Nice. Uh, so in that circumstance, we wouldn't require any money down um, because the appraised value came in at a million and you're just getting an awesome deal because Brian's so amazing, he negotiated it for you. <laughs> and there's no down payment. 
is there, I will say, just people listening, um, very rare to negotiate the price of the real estate, just FYI. Um, so don't, don't expect that as a normal course of action. But um, I, yeah, I wasn't necessarily, that, I wasn't very fair. Let me ask you, in this particular very unusual scenario that I laid out for you, is there any danger that the seller now realizes the practice, or excuse me, the building is worth a million and he's selling it to me for 800 and wants to renegotiate? Probably. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. So the seller could look and say, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Back up a second. Like now I want a million. Uh, now they'll very likely want to know what it appraised for because they let the, the appraiser in the building. Right. But the appraisal is paid for by the borrower and therefore only the bank and the borrower see it. So again, I'm the, the seller has every right and will surely want to know what that number came in at, but it's not a document that we send directly to the seller. Okay, fair enough. The more common scenario is seller wants a million, the appraiser appraised it at 985 or mm -hmm. 993 or some other number. Yeah. Then, then the 85% is based on which one? The, the one the seller and I have agreed to or the one the appraiser said? The appraiser because it's lower. Okay, yes. so 85% of whatever the appraised value is. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Um, so then the next logical question is, how does the right this buyer with four hundred, five hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars in student loans? They're borrowing another. Now you're telling me I've got to come up with a down payment. How do most buyers do that? Where where do most buyers get the money, that extra fifteen twenty percent for the real estate? Sometimes uh, that can come in the form of what's called a seller note or a carry back, uh, a seller carry back or a seller note. The same thing. So what that is in let's use the million dollar example that you just uh, laid out. So the practice costs a million dollars, and Bank of America will lend eight hundred and fifty thousand. Um, you said but, practice, you meant building, right? Building's worth a million. Or building, excuse me. Building is worth building's worth a million. So Bank of America lends eight hundred and fifty thousand, and the seller maybe or the buyer doesn't want to or or doesn't have the funds to come in for that fifteen percent. What typically happens is the seller then carries a note. Meaning Bank of America has, you have a loan to Bank of America for 850,000. And then you make payments to the seller for that difference of 150,000. So maybe the payment each month is, I'm just using a number, $8,500 to Bank of America, $1,500 to the seller. We would look to do that for two years. Once we see, or one full year of tax returns, depending on when you bought the practice, what time of year, but I'd say two years to be safe. If the practice is stable uh, and cash flowing well, then we cash the seller out of that seller note, whatever the balance is at that time. Look, I hear uh, seller note, seller carry back. These are all terms that kind of mean the same thing. Essentially, it means B of A is carrying part of the value of the building and the seller is carrying another part, a smaller part, but still a part of the value of the building. Uh, but B of A is going to carry it for, what's the typical term on a real estate loan? 15, 20 years? Exactly. Yes. A little bit longer than a typical practice loan. So the practice, the goodwill loans are 10, 12, sometimes 15 years. A building loan is 15 or 20 years if it's a conventional loan. But that seller, the seller in this case that is lending me, the borrower, $150,000, they don't need to carry that, that $150K for 15 or 20 years. They only need to carry it for a year or two before I can come back to Mike Pakula and say, hey, Mike, it's been you know 18 months. I've made all my payments. And by the way, I grew the practice also. Can I please have the rest of that 15% to pay off the seller? Absolutely. So yes. 
Okay. And, 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 to, and to, to further add to that, the seller note or seller carryback will be coterminous with the bank loan. So if the building loan is 15 years, 3%, the seller note is also 15 years, 3%. But like you just said, Brian, we will look to cash out the seller um, after 18 months or whenever that full tax return is, is back. I like it. Okay. Last question on seller notes, seller carrybacks, whatever term you want to use. Um, do they ever happen on the practice? And if they do, and I, and I see, yeah, the answer, spoiler alert, is yes. <laughs> and when they happen on a practice, why? Why do seller notes happen on practice purchases? And what does that mean for the average buyer? Well, the banks will put them in place uh, to mitigate what some kind of risk that they see uh, with the transition. So, and that could. Uh, let me put that into Brian English. What I hear you saying is, if it's a riskier deal for whatever reason. Correct. Um, there is something, there is some part of the deal. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for catching me in my bank lingo. There is some part of the transition or some part of the history, something between buyer and seller that the underwriters are willing to approve the loan. But what they want is they want the seller to have a little bit of skin in the game there. It's, it's, it's a benefit to the bank of course, and it's also can be a benefit to the buyer. So what that means, some things that might trigger a seller note or seller carryback are, let's say, declining revenues year over year over year. Um, practice has gone from a million to 900,000 to 800. It's on pace to do 700 this year. And maybe you've determined that it's appropriately priced at $525,000. But the banks, all they see is just a downward trajectory. So if we're if the price is five fifty, the bank may say, okay, we'll lend four hundred thousand, but for at least eighteen months, we would like to see the seller have some incentive to make sure that that downward trajectory levels off or you know preferably starts to go back up again. Okay, so declining revenues might be a reason for a seller carryback. What else? Declining revenues might be one. Um, let's say that uh, it's called the term is commingled tax returns, and what that means is if if uh, if I have a, if I have three practices and I'm only selling one and they're all here in Phoenix and all of them roll up to one tax return, then, you know, there there may be a little bit of, of trepidation on, on. OK, are some of those expenses uh, where what practice are they really for? Um, so the bank will require profit and loss statements for each practice, even the ones that aren't being sold. And typically there is a seller note there to make sure that, you know, everything was reflected accurately when we sold the practice. Let, let me repeat that out loud. Do you see if I got this right? I'm mm -hmm. buying one location from a seller, a DSO, you know, somebody who has multiple locations. They mm -hmm. own multiple dental practices. I'm buying one of them. And the way that I would phrase it <laughs> is either the seller was a cheapskate or the accountant was stupid and they didn't. <laughs> They didn't separate the, the income and expenses for the individual locations. So when I see dental supplies on a tax return, I'm seeing dental supplies for three, four, eight different locations. And I can't tell if this one in the northwest corner of the city, you know, what, what, which ones were their dental supplies? Which ones were their lab fees? I, I can't tell as easily. And you're saying that if, if, that, if I'm a buyer and I'm going to go buy one of those locations, and I see a situation like that, the bank may say, hey, this is a little riskier deal. Therefore, there's going to be a seller carryback. Did I get that right? Yeah, you nailed it. Um, the only way to typically get around that, which the seller is very unlikely to do, 
would, would be if it's called a compiled profit and loss statement, which basically means the, C, the seller would have to go to their CPA for the last three years and basically have them run through the financials of each practice, all three, not just the one that they're selling. And as you know, that can be quite costly. And um, that's the way to do it. Hundreds of hours of work on the top part of the office managers and the dentist. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so most sellers turn up their nose at that. Okay. Um, give me one more seller carry common seller carry back situation. Uh, last one would be, it's probably the least common of these three, but I do see it. Let's say a practice has been doing, um, 700,000, 700,000, 700,000. And then last year it did 1.1 million. Uh, yeah. And maybe it's, you know, it, and it's priced based off that last year because there's such a, a, a quick spike, um, if we're going to lend 90 plus percent on that practice, we may require the seller to carry a little bit just because it's, you know, cruising at a certain collections and then increasing by 60% in one year is, we have some questions there. The most common one I see, I don't know that we mentioned, I don't, I actually don't know if this is the most common, you tell me. Most common that I see is the seller thinks they have a great running practice, but they actually don't. The practice actually has really high overhead, which is just code for it's poorly run. There's more money going out the door in this practice than in the average dental practice. Those are the, the ones where I see in the buyer, maybe correctly, by the way, maybe correctly says, hey, I recognize that the overhead of this practice sucks, but I want to live here and I think I can turn the finances of this practice around. Please lend me the money. To which typically I will see the bank say, sure, we'll lend you part of the money, but the seller's got to carry a note. It, those are the most common ones for me, but I don't know. On your end, is that as common as I see? Well, kind of. I mean, it still needs to cash flow. So, And what that means is in the previous webinar we did with that 1.2 to 1 ratio, well, we still factor in your payment to the seller as, as debt. Um, so I guess maybe sometimes, Brian, if the practice is collecting – $800,000, but it's profiting 70% mm -hmm. and it's for sale for a million dollars. Maybe it will cash flow and someone just really, really wants that practice. But it's for us, it's 125% of collections, which is just a number that we may not go that high. Um, yep. that, that, that could be it, but that's, I don't see that as often these days. Okay. Uh, totally separate topic, shift gears for a minute, but a common question that I get from a lot of buyers is I'm moving to a city to buy a practice or um, I'm just ready to move on in life. I already live here, but I want to buy a practice and I want to go get a mortgage to buy a new home. And I want to do both within a few weeks of each other. Uh, number one, can it be done? And if yes, how? This is the question I get asked more than any question by an audience ever. Um, so thank you for asking. Uh, my, my suggestion would be to talk to a mortgage lender ahead of time to make sure that you would qualify to, to purchase a home right after you buy a practice. Because some mortgage lenders may require two full years of tax returns because you're purchasing a new business. Um, my bank hat off, uh, my, my personal suggestion would be if you have the money to buy a, a, a home first or at the same time as buying a practice, to perhaps do that. Um, just remember that if you deplete, don't deplete all of your money on the down payment, because after your down payment, the bank will still want to see that seven to 10% uh, 
uh, a little cushion for buying the practice. Yeah. Uh, so I would say talk to a mortgage lender because some have, B of A has a doctor program, but even some, uh, we'll, we may need a couple years of tax returns after you buy the business. So make sure you have a mortgage lender in place that can lend to you if you buy a practice three months ago um, and you want to buy a home now. So I heard you say, yes, it can happen. Um, make sure you talk, see if you can find a mortgage lender that would recognize that you're a dentist with high earning potential that's about to buy a business and won't have some of the, the typical check marks that that mortgage mm-hmm. lender needs and see if that mortgage lender will work with you. If that doesn't work, what I hear you saying is, and, and maybe even if it does work, are you saying it probably makes sense to buy the house first if, and here's the big if, if you can afford 20% down on your house and still have 7 to 10% of the purchase price of the practice in cash sitting in a checking savings money market account after you buy the house. Did I get that right? Yes, and, and another big if, if you are confident that the practice that you're going to purchase is within 60 miles of, of where you're living. Okay, so, okay, yeah, interesting. So I guess to step back, if you are really hard pressed on buying a home, then you know maybe try to get it before if you know the area that you're going to live. Um, but also, if buying the right practice is of the utmost importance, then perhaps be okay with renting during the first two years of being a practice owner. It's hard to hear as a dentist, or right? you've put your life on hold, your friends from undergrad that didn't do dentistry, right? They're already in homes and they're taking vacations and they're buying boats and they're doing all kinds of things. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute, I thought, where's my Lamborghini? I thought I'm a dentist, right? It can be hard to hear someone like us say, hey, just go rent for another 12 months. What's the big deal? That's not necessarily what we're saying. But what we are saying is think about what is financially going to drive your future and prioritize that piece first, then put the other piece in first in place in that the financial driver is the practice. The practice is going to provide the income to drive everything else, including your home. And your home, yeah, it's a big piece, and there's a lot of emotion um, that's uh, in that as well. So, okay. And you can okay. call those friends every day at 2 p.m. when you're 53 years old and retired and ask them what they're doing. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, Michael, uh, for those who want to get in touch with you and reach out, um, what do you prefer and how would you like folks to, uh, to reach out? Well, thank you. Yeah, I can be reached on my cell directly, which is uh, 330-518-0690. Or I can always be emailed directly at Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot Pakula, P as in Paul, A-K-U-L-A at B-O-F-A dot com. Perfect. And we'll put uh, both the phone number and the email address in the show notes. Um, I can tell you from personal experience, um, uh, folks who tell me, not just me, uh, that when they reach out to Michael, um, even on holidays and weekends, which I've chided you about a little bit, you still answer, you pick up, and uh, you are very available for questions and, and help. And it's very approachable. So don't be shy about reaching out to Michael. Today is Michael. a bank holiday. Yeah, that's true. It is. <laughs> um, thank you for being a part of this. Um, I, I appreciate all of the advice and the, uh, the help given here. Hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate you letting me be a part of it.